0: So uh, angels, uh, you know, there, there was a, a threat of rebellion in heaven. Uh, it wasn't the threat that, that you are aware of. Uh, you, you're thinking about the threat when, you know, Satan and his, uh, the, one, the angels that became demons, all that. That was a long, 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 long time ago. The threat that I'm talking about was much more recent than that. It was just this past fall, and it had to do with the good angels, Okay, what happened was, last fall, I did a three-part series on, entitled A Brief History of Satan. And you recall that. Well, the good angels were not happy about that. They wanted equal time. And so there was this threat of rebellion, and uh, so we entered into negotiations, uh, very uh, you know, the, the, you know it, was, it was difficult, these negotiations, because I only had two Sunday evenings to, to give them, and so it couldn't have been equal time, and so we really wrestled with this back and forth. And the, the ultimate solution to that was I would, I, I would do two messages on good angels, and we would throw in a fellowship afterwards with food. So that was what the result was. That's why you have fellowship this evening, right? And uh, so, so anyway, and by the way, they tried to throw an angel food cake, but that didn't fly uh, with, that didn't work out either. So. But these were good angels, so they weren't too, uh, you know, too exercised about the whole issue. Uh, but so yes, for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about uh, the angelic world, trying to understand the nature of angels this evening, and then really what kind of ministry angels have with us. And the series is entitled, Angels Seriously? Uh, Rudolf Boltmann was an exceptionally gifted New Testament scholar. Uh, he contributed to one of the great reference works that nearly every pastor and theologian has uh, in his library, or her library, or whatever's library. I have it, certainly, and uh, many of you do too. It's the Kittel's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Uh, anybody that does any kind of serious biblical study probably has Kittel's. But Rudolf Boltmann, as exceptional a gifted New Testament scholar he was, actually was not really a believer. Uh, he wrote this, for instance. He said, We cannot use electric lights and radios, and in the event of illness avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means, and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. And so while he was a master at describing the world of the New Testament, and actually interpreting what the Bible means, he really didn't believe it. That would be the perspective, by the way, of most of the world's intellectual elites, and I trust that uh, perhaps that wouldn't be your perspective this evening. By contrast, you have someone like John G. Patton. John Patton was a uh, one of those remarkable pioneer missionaries in this case, to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific in the 19th century. And he worked in an area of cannibals, a tribe in particular which was cannibalistic. And on one particular occasion, Patton and his wife were surrounded by cannibals at night who were intent on killing them. And so he and his wife fell to their knees and prayed for deliverance. And they would hear the cries of the cannibals, and uh, they expected them to come into the camp at any moment in time. Well, the night unfolded before them, and at sunrise, the natives retreated into the forest and Patton and his wife rejoiced about that, and they continued their work, uh, their work of uh, caring for that tribe and doing evangelism and all of that kind of thing that you would expect missionaries to do. Well, a year later, the chieftain of that tribe was converted. He became a Christian. And so when uh, Patton had the opportunity, he asked him why he and his men had not killed him and his wife uh, that year earlier. And the chief replied, who were all those men with you? Patton said, there were no men with us. They were just my wife and myself. And then they got into an argument about that. And then finally the chief said, there were hundreds of tall men with shining garments and drawn swords circling about your house so we could not attack you. That's a different kind of world than the world that uh, Rudolf Boltmann imagines. The modern view of angels is that they are simply mythological figures, kind of figments of our imagination, or convenient fictions. Uh, Boltmann's view was typical of what we call theological liberalism in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, which was an inherent, had an inherently anti-supernatural bias, a skeptical view of anything outside of that which can be uh, experienced by the senses. Uh, of course, the, the liberal argument, the theologically liberal argument, uh, is a circular argument, as you might understand it. Uh, the premise is that non-physical beings can't exist. And when they find one in the New Testament, they rule it out of order, but they've already determined the conclusion by their premise non-spiritual, or excuse me, non-physical beings can't exist. So the same argument is used against the literal resurrection of Christ. It's used against the virgin birth of Christ, indeed against anything supernatural in the New Testament. That tends to be uh, the way in which a lot of the the secularized uh, universe tends to look at angels and their like. Uh, Typical of this view was the deist Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson took his Bible, and he took a pair of scissors, and he cut out any evidence of supernaturalism in the Bible, and he put together his own Bible. You can actually go out and find it. It's called the Jefferson Bible, in which all the supernatural dimensions of the New Testament have been removed. There are a lot of contemporary people like Thomas Jefferson. They just don't use scissors. They just ignore what's in the Bible that has anything to do with the supernatural and they use the figurative scissors of their minds to cut out the parts that they don't like. On the other hand, it's kind of interesting how things unfold and and develop. C.S. Lewis observed that the rejection of belief in the God of the Bible has not led people uh, to complete disbelief, but that they will actually believe really pretty much anything. That's essentially what's happened today in a lot of the world because people are fascinated with angels. There are lots of people who, don't, who would not call themselves Christians, don't like to be called religious, but they are called, they call themselves spiritual, and they actually have a fixation on angels. They collect angel memorabilia and art, and they reject the God of the Bible, but they nevertheless focus on angels. It's a strange world that we live in, isn't it? But that's simply the sort of the landscape of uh, what happens. So what are we to believe? Uh, We recognize the validity and the authority and the truth of Scripture, and so we're going to use the Bible in this two part series to definitively determine the nature and function of the angelic world. So, first of all, what are angels? Well, they are created spiritual beings. In other words, angels are part of the universe that God created. We find this passage in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6 You are the Lord, you alone. And then he says this, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host. So all the host of heaven, the angelic world, was made by God. The earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So angels are part of the universe that God created. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 in the New Testament, Paul says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him." So angels are created spiritual beings. Every one of those words is significant. They are created. They didn't always exist. They are spiritual. They have spirits but no bodies, and they certainly are beings. They are real, just as real as any of us sitting in this room. There are various kinds of angels. Angels are known by a number of different kinds of names in the Bible. Uh, So, for instance, in Job chapter 1, verse 6, they are called sons of God. That's kind of interesting because you and I are called sons of God in a different kind of sense. But uh, angels are called sons of God. We read in in Job, thou there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. That uh, basic text is repeated again in the second chapter of Job. They're also called holy ones in Psalm 89, verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. In Psalm 89, verse 7, God greatly is greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 13, here's an interesting name for angels. They're called watchers. Watchers Isn't that interesting? Daniel 4:13, "I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And then they're called Thrones and dominions and principalities and authorities in the passage that I just read a moment ago in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. In addition to those names, there are some particular kinds of angels that are described in the Bible. One is cherubim. Uh, They are the angels that guarded the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Don't confuse, by the way, this description of the cherubim with kind of the cherubs, those little You know, pudgy little cute angels that uh, Rubens used to paint, and you find them in stores and all that kind of thing. Evidently, these cherubim are really pretty remarkable and terrifying angels because they were guarding the return to the Garden of Eden. God enthroned on the cherubim and transported by the cherubim is the kind of description we see in the Scripture. So in Psalm 18, verse 10, he rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. And so they seem to also be able to transport uh, the presentation of deity. In Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out, with the, wing, with the wheels beside them, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of, God, of the God of Israel was over them. And so the cherub, cherubim uh, were involved in the exodus of God himself, the glory of the Lord, uh, from the temple. And the cherubim are also described as uh, being situated above the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the throne room of heaven in regard that when the, uh, Moses was given the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle, which eventually became the temple, the Ark of the Covenant had on top of it the mercy seat, and above the mercy seat were these two magnificent cherubim whose wings extended not only across the expanse of the Ark of the Covenant, but all the way to the edges of the, uh, of the very throne room, the Holy of Holies. And uh, the way Moses described it, that was what he saw when he was able to see into the very real throne room of heaven. And so we find the cherubim then uh, in the presence of God, in fact, uh, marking the presence of God over the mercy seat. Exodus 25:22 puts it this way, there I will meet with you and above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. Uh, So the cherubim are very closely associated with the immediate presence of God in that sense in the throne room of God. Then in addition to the cherubim are the seraphim. Uh, The seraphim seem to be a little different kind of creature, but they also exist in the presence of God and are worshiping creatures. The only place that we find the seraphim mentioned is in Isaiah chapter 6, that wonderful description that Isaiah gives of his vision of the holiness of God. And so beginning in verse 2 of that chapter, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Six wings on this particular kind of angel, but only two of them were used for flying, which is really kind of odd. The other four were used for humility, in which they covered their face and they covered their feet in the presence of the holiness of God. So you have the cherubim, and you have the seraphim, and you have the living creatures, which are described in Exodus and also in the book of Revelation, which had appearances like a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle, and they were representative, you see, of various parts of the entire creation. And so there were wild beasts were basically uh, depicted by the lion, domesticated animals by the ox, uh, human beings by the man, and birds by an eagle. And so there's a sense in which the angelic world uh, is somehow representing various dimensions of the created world. And they are constantly worshiping these angels. Revelation chapter four, these living creatures. Revelation chapter four, beginning in verse six, before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These worshiping creatures. You can tell with all of those eyes why Daniel called them watchers. They're watching. There is also, a peer, a, appears to be, a order in the angelic world. That angels aren't simply independent beings just flying around doing whatever they want to do. They seem to have a rank and order about them. For instance, Michael is said to be an archangel. The word archangel is, kind, is basically, the meaning of it is a chief angel or the head angel. And it's a title that represents authority over other angels. So we find in the New Testament in Jude, verse 9, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, Michael also is in the New Testament recorded in this way, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And so this archangel Michael was the leader of an angelic army. Uh, interestingly, in uh, Acts chapter 12, we find an, an interesting dimension of, of this. I'm trying to look. I'm seeing. I'm just going to make sure because my text is a little goofy at the moment. I want to make sure I'm not missing something in my notes. Yep. Hang on just a moment. Okay, I think I see it. Acts chapter 12, verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. That's an example of what happened when God, in fact, intervened on behalf of the saints, on behalf of Peter. Uh, I'm still not convinced that that's in the right place. I had an issue with printing this afternoon. Uh, Let me see where I am, pardon me. There's Michael. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll pick it up from there. So what are the characteristics of these angels? as we find uh, that they are these created beings. One of the things that we understand about angels is that they are finite beings. They're not infinite, they're not like God, they are limited in one way or another. First of all, they are only at one place at a time. They are not omnipresent, in other words. In Daniel chapter 10, we see this. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, Your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Here's an example of an angel that basically is restricted in his location. And the archangel uh, Michael had to come and give him help at that particular place. So angels are not able to simply be in two places at once. Uh, How many angels are there? There are lots and lots of them. Lots and lots of angels. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Other verses of Scripture echo that kind of idea of the plentiful nature of angels. Psalm 68, verse 17, the chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Hebrews twelve twenty-two, but you have come to Mount Zion, and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And then in Revelation five, eleven. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. I don't have a definition of myriads. But you can imagine what that means. In addition to being plentiful, they are powerful. Psalm 103 says this, Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones, who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Second Peter 2.11, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. And so they are more powerful than you and I are, and, uh, and, and uh, they certainly have that kind of power. They do have limitations as well. They are, so, are not familial. They don't marry. Now, we know that from the words of Jesus because when He contested with uh, the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, they pose this particular problem, that what happens when a woman has been married to a number of uh, multiple husbands without any children, whose, husband, or whose wife would she be in heaven? And he basically says in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, that has led some to believe that human beings, when we die, become angels. That's really not what the text says. It simply means that at that particular time, we're not like angels in terms of engaged in a marital familial relationship. Angels don't have that kind of connection. Now, when were angels created? I know that that was something that you've been thinking about a lot, right? Uh, You just wonder when angels showed up on the scene. Uh, Certainly, they had to have showed up before the seventh day of creation. And uh, you can decide exactly how you want to understand the days of creation, but before the seventh day of creation, uh, we would recognize angels to have been there. Because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And so the host of heaven would be the angel, the angelic world. In uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. So, heaven uh, and the heavenly beings were certainly included in the expanse of creation in that particular sense, at least before the seventh day. But it's very possible the Scripture sort of implies that they were created on the first day of creation. You find, for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, a verse which you certainly know well, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, between verses 1 and 2, you have verse 1 creating the heavens and the earth, and then you have verse 2 speaking about the earth itself being without void, or without form and void, and essentially uninhabited. And so, if God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, Maybe that took place initially before even the earth was created, because there's no mention of the heavens. The earth is the one that is void. Then you have Job 38, verse 6, on what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And so that implies that when the earth had its foundations laid, as is described in Genesis 1 verse 2, then there were shouts of joy by the sons of God. That is, the angelic world was rejoicing with the creation of the rest of the creation. So uh, certainly the, uh, the angelic world was created during the period of creation, most likely very, very early in the period of creation. And then certainly, as you know, they had to have been created before the fall of Adam and Eve, because the rebellion in heaven, the real rebellion, not the one that I was making fun of a few moments ago, but the real rebellion in heaven occurred certainly after the sixth day of creation, but before Adam and Eve fell. Had to be after the sixth day of creation, because after the sixth day of creation, God looked at it all, and He said it was good, not only good, but Very good when human beings were created. So sometime between that particular occasion and when Adam and Eve fell, did the rebellion take place. We also find another interesting description of the angelic world in this title, the angel of the Lord. And uh, that could be a puzzling kind of issue to, uh, to reckon with. The angel of the Lord is often thought by many to be either a theophany or a Christophany. A theophany or a Christophany, what does that mean? Well, uh, a theophany is a visible appearance of the invisible God. A Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. Got that? In other words, before Jesus came in the flesh, there are moments in which he could be said to have appeared in one way or another. And the idea is that perhaps this is what is meant when the Scripture says, the angel of the Lord. Not an angel of the Lord. That would be simply a representative angel speaking the words of God. But in this case, the angel of the Lord seems to be a theophany or a Christophany. Here are some examples in, uh, in the book of Genesis. We have Hagar. You know Hagar, the... Uh, you know, the, what I would call the pretend wife of Abraham, right? Uh, the one who en- ended up uh, issuing an Ishmael. In Genesis chapter 6, we find this. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, uh, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. An angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. So the angel of the Lord gives Hagar this promise after telling her to go back to Sarai, soon to be named Sarah, uh, and submit. But then in verse 13 of that chapter, uh, so she, that is Hagar, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, Here I have seen him who looks after me. So she attributes the angel of the Lord to an appearance of God himself. And so that would be a theophany. Uh, Abraham also had an appearance like this as well in Genesis chapter 22, that chapter in in which the uh, sacrifice of Isaac is depicted. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So Abraham has this visitation by the angel of the Lord, and he attributes uh, basically the Godhead himself as appearing in that particular occasion. Jacob had a similar experience, Genesis 31, 11, The angel of the Lord said to me in the dream, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Then later on in that chapter, a couple verses later, he said, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise and go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So this, the angel of the Lord, actually calls himself God. And then we find the similar case with Moses in Exodus chapter 3, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And then verse 6 of chapter 3, he said, I am the God of your father, uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So here again, the angel of the Lord is uh, is described as God himself in this theophany. Um, that's what we understand to be the angel of the Lord. But other passages seem to distinguish between the angel of the Lord and God Himself, meaning it might be an angel that comes from the Lord. So you have to always look at the context to try to sort that kind of thing out. So in Second Samuel chapter 4, 24, verse 16, we read, And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aaronah the Jebusite. Here, the angel of the Lord is different than the Lord himself. The Lord Himself gives instruction to the angel of the Lord to uh, restrain what uh, judgment was about to unfold before us. So those are some of the basic understandings and ideas that represent uh, what we understand angels to be in Scripture, the nature of angels, and who these beings are. Now what difference does it make? Well, what difference it makes, you'll find out next week. Because next week we're going to look at, all right, what's the relationship we have with angels? Uh, What do angels do for the saints? How are angels involved in our lives? And so it'll be a fascinating opportunity for you to come back, and uh, I trust that that'll be an encouragement to you. There are such beings. The Bible speaks of them. Uh, We understand that they are real, and we recognize that that's going to be a great blessing to us, and you'll find out more about that next week. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, you are creative work is remarkable, and it unfolds before us in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. We laud you and honor you and praise you, O God, for all of your creation, even the unseen world, even the world in which uh, we are given a glimpse into the very nature of the spiritual realm. And we pray, Father, that you would help us understand how these remarkable beings seek to accomplish your purposes in this world, and fulfill all of your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.